Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. So I went on the mission trip, had a great time. We spent seven days on the mountain and and I thought I was going to die, but whatever, you know, from Miami, postmenopausal grandma, first mountain, let's do Kili, let's go. Um, we don't even have hills. Yeah, we don't even have hills in Miami, you know. Um, but I, but I'm very like you, right? Summit or die. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna summit or I'm gonna die. Try. And and you know what, Rob? When I came back from that trip, I said, I sat my husband and my kids and my mom down, and I said, Listen, I'm retiring from title. They thought I'd fallen and hit my head on on the mountain or lost too much oxygen at the top. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, The Best Mental Toughness Quotes That Will Make You Better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D R R O B B E L L, to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. Are you one of nearly 7 in 10 Americans who doesn't feel fully rested when the alarm clock rings? Do you dread your mornings? Let's change that. Psalm Sleep is a drug-free, non-habit-forming sleep drink in a small can that can help save your nights from tossing and turning. Find out for yourself at getsom.com and stop dreading your alarm. Psalm Sleep, it gives you Z's. After years of building, operating, and growing her own successful business, our guest took her experience and love of philanthropy to travel to Africa on a climb to Mount Kilimanjaro. It's part of a mission to change the world for Maasai children. Can't wait to hear that. But our guest, you know, since she reached the peak of 19,000 feet, she's re-envisioned the importance of the power of generosity. Our guest has helped businesses and individuals connect uh, genuinely, give generously, and reach a level of success and fulfillment that means more to her clients than just the bottom line. Our guest is a keynote speaker, professional certified coach, author, and host of the Dreamers Succeed podcast. Fantastic podcast. And as the founder of Dreamers Succeed, our guest, an internal optimist, is Berna Medina. Berna, thank you so much for for joining us. Yay! So great to be here, Rob. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here, and, and I'm so grateful to you for the invitation to spend some time with you. Absolutely. Looking so, forward to it. So I'm, I'm so glad we've been connected for probably about a year now. It's been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're definitely one of those people that everyone refers to. So what I mean is, if you're ever in a meeting, somebody's always like, well, you have to meet so-and-so. Berta is the one. We're like, oh, well, you have to meet Berta. And after you do, it, it's pretty evident why. Um, <laughs> but let, let me start with this. I mean, you're a first-generation American. And you were, and you, and you classified like you were an only child, but you were never alone. Talk to us about that experience and then growing up, because I think you have a special, unique experience that, that most don't. Sure, sure. I love that, Rob. Thank you for, for that invitation. So yes, first generation American. My mom got here in 1965. So so the timing was perfect because I was born in 1967. And we were the typical, you know, first generation just uh, born to Cuban immigrant parents who were just, um, you know, immigrating into the United States. And we had that blended, you know, what, what to a Cuban is a normal family, you know, grew up in a three generation home. So we had my grandmother, my grandfather, my mom, my father actually went back to Cuba when my mom was five months pregnant. And then my aunt, whose husband was a truck driver and he was all around the country. So we had this little community. And then I grew up with myself and four cousins. So we, were together from when we were born practically until we all got married. And, and it really, really gave a very unique perspective for us. It was very normal because that being in a multi-generational home where our nucleus is, is what everybody else considers extended was, was really 
enriching for me. You know, we had um, the father figure in the home was my grandfather, you know, got here when he was 60 years old, uh, retired police officer in Cuba and, and was the proudest American I've ever known, you know? So, so he was Mr. Optimistic, wouldn't take welfare or government cheese. And he worked three jobs to make sure that all of us were, were taken care of. My mom worked as well. My grandma sort of did all the cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids. And then my aunt was the only driver in the house and she was everybody's chauffeur. So it really, it really was, whether it was intentional or not, it really worked out well for us. You know, we were poor, but we didn't know it at the time. And, you know, there was always enough for piano lessons and ballet or just enough for piano lessons and ballet. Um, and an encyclopedia, you know, not, not clothes or all the other things you wanted, but the important stuff. So it was, it was really, really cool. Um, I, I feel very blessed that I got to grow up in that kind of an environment. Yeah. So I bring that up because you've mentioned before the importance of your grandfather. And I was wondering if you could tell us a story about because when I believe he was in his 80s and he had a stroke. Yeah. And, and talk to us about then, you know, how because, I mean, he was so focused on, you know, American citizenship. Talk, talk right. to us about that experience. Sure. Sure. So my grandpa was, uh, again, just one of these. Uh, people who was so grateful for this country, for taking him in, allowing him to work three jobs. You know, he started with three jobs, then two jobs, then down to one job, which he retired from when he was 82 years old. You know, he wanted to make sure we were all colleged, we were all married, and we were all sort of standing on our own two feet before he finally accepted retirement. So when he was 84, he told everyone, okay, now I'm going to go and I'm going to become an American citizen, which is something I've always wanted to do. And I'm going to do it. So he starts that process. And two months into the process, he suffers a stroke. And it was it was like a like a bad stroke. Um, and, you know, we're at the hospital and we're freaking out and everybody's just trying to, you know, make sense of what's happening. Who He's always been an otherwise healthy man, walks, you know, four or five miles a day, was just part of his routine. And. So when the smoke finally clears, the doctor's in there and he says, hey, you know, do you have any questions for me? And my grandfather's, you know, his mouth is crooked and he can't move one side of his body. And, and he says, you know, am I going to be able to raise my right hand to swear in as an American citizen? <laughs> you know, that's what he was worried about. He wasn't worried about, you know, am I ever going to be able to walk again? Am I, it was just, am I going to be able to raise my right hand to swear in as an American citizen? And I thought that's something that, that has always stuck with me. Because I know how extremely patriotic I am and how much love we have for this country, my cousins and I. And, and I, it was nothing ever that he's preaching to us or telling us that sort of thing. It was very subtle, but it was very evident. There was always an American flag in our home growing up. And, and my grandfather was, was, was able to eventually, you know, recover from the stroke. He was in rehab you know, at the hospital, you know, admitted in the hospital for a month and, and really did well, thank God, after that. So then you, you, he was able to swear in and become an American citizen. That was a whole big deal. We had a party and everybody was there and, and he just wanted to, he was so celebratory about that. And then you fast forward, you know, I want to say 15 years after that or something like that. And my cousin, his oldest grandson, was graduating from the police academy. So my cousin wanted to make sure that my grandfather attended the ceremony because it was sort of his way of honoring his legacy. And, and we're sitting there. My grandfather's by this time is well into the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. You know, we brought him in on the wheelchair, but he's barely there. You know what I mean? And um, just didn't really know what was going on. And all of a sudden they brought out the American flag and they started playing the national anthem and, and my grandfather lowered his head and we, he always wore a little sailor's cap and he removed it from his head and he stood up slowly, but surely he stood up from his wheelchair. So we're in shock because we're thinking what is happening right now? And the people around him who didn't know him were like, Hey, it's okay. Sit down. And I'm thinking, man, they have no idea. My grandfather did not remember our names did not remember how to go to the bathroom. And at that moment, he didn't even remember that he couldn't stand. He hadn't stood on his own in three years. Wow. He hadn't been able to get out of bed in three years. He hadn't been able to do anything. 
And, but there was so much love and gratitude and honor for this country that he loved so much that he, it was just whatever he had to muster. It was just, it was almost like instinctual. And he, he stood up for the entirety of the national anthem with his hat over his heart. And then when it was done, he sat down and he, he never stood up again. And, um, and I, I say that's, that's the kind of heart that my grandfather had for this country. And that's the kind of heart that he sort of, without preaching about it, sort of instilled in us. And again, just, he, he was a remarkable human being. He was, my optimism comes from him. Hey there, good looking. If you're digging this podcast and check out our book, Puke and Rally, it's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. Just go to pukeandrallybook.com. Now back to the show. I love the story. And I can see where examples like that would simply tattoo on your soul the impact that he made on, on your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you had a successful business and you weren't until your 40s that you had a hinge moment. And that's what this podcast is all about. That one moment, one event, one person that makes all the difference in our lives. Share with us that hinge moment, please. Hinge moment. Okay. So I'm 46 years old, right? Uh, married 26 years, had raised two amazing kids, taking care of, you know, both of our moms, who both his mom and, and my mom lived with us and checked all those boxes off. It's great. And one day I looked in the mirror and I said, who the hell are you? And what have you done with Berta? You know, I had checked off all these boxes that society deems necessary that we check off. And I was, I was full of empty man, Rob. I was, I was just like, what is happening here? Where is, where am I? I, I got lost in all this shuffle of the busy and the success and the marriage and the raising the kids. And, and it just, it, it just hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. And I thought, you know what, if I don't start living it with intention, if I don't start doing something about it, I'm going to, this is just going to be a miserable existence for the, you know, 54 years I have left. Right. Cause I'm, I plan to live to be a hundred <laughs> and, um, and it, and it was wild. And then I, I don't know what happened, Rob, that suddenly things sort of started happening. I think, I think once you put yourself in that position where you're open to what God, you know, I call it God, some people call it universe, whatever it is, um, can start doing that work in you. You have to be open to it. And man, he did and, and over delivered. And, you know, within months of that incident, I received this invitation to this mission trip. Um, I started flying, which I'd always wanted to do. Um, I, I started this professional coaching court, never thinking I would leave. I was on in real estate on the title insurance side, right. loved every minute of it, never thought I would leave it. But everybody would call me, hey, coach, you know, hey. And one day, one of my daughter's best friends comes over and she'd had a bad breakup. And she said, listen, you should really be a coach. And I said, Oh, people call me that all my, all the time. And she said, no, but like, you should really do it. Like, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, you know, you can get certified and you can do that for a living. And I'm like, what the hell? What? And two weeks later, you know, I started full blown investigation mode and I'm sort of like a detective. And two weeks later, I'm enrolled at the university of Miami again, thinking, I'm just going to see what this is about the certification course. I'll take it and right. and have it in my back pocket. And man, it was it was crazy because that was the mission trip came about in July and in, in January. We had nine months to prepare for this climb and we were going to spend three weeks in Kenya and Tanzania serving these children. And the coaching course started in July. I had started flying the December before and sort of everything just started shifting in the direction of 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 my life and my dreams. So I went on the mission trip, had a great time. We spent seven days on the mountain and, and I thought I was going to die, but whatever, you know, from Miami, postmenopausal grandma, first mountain, let's do Killy. Let's go. Um, we don't even have hills. Yeah. We don't even have hills in Miami, you know? 
Um, but I, but I'm very like you, right? Summit or die. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna summit or I'm gonna die. Try. And and you know what, Rob? When I came back from that trip, I said I sat my husband and my kids and my mom down, and I said, "Listen, I'm retiring from title." They thought I'd fallen and hit my head on on the mountain or lost too much oxygen at the top. Um, and and by this, I got back October fourth. By December thirty first of that year, I was retired. I gave away my business, my Miami, my Miami business. I gave away to some really good people that I had worked with for years and my Orlando company. I gave it away to one of my clothes. You had, you had given that away, given it away. Yeah. I, I had, I had three, my underwriters were after me, you know, three really, really good offers to buy it, but you have to leave your license for six to nine months. And I was like, listen, uh, if I'm done, I'm done. And by December 31st, I was done. I was coaching full time. I wanted to have the time to be able to work with these children and commit to really making a difference and, and never look back. God was extremely generous with me. I, I, I give him all the glory. I know that that's how that happened, the way that it happened, but um, it's been a hell of a ride, Rob. It's been crazy, crazy. And how has the work with the kids. I mean, talk, talk us through, you know, that progression and how that operates now. Yeah. The work, the work with the kids has been, and it's something I've always, I've always wanted to do. I mean, if you looked at my vision board, I made my first vision board in, in 2007 and it was standing and sitting and, you know, hanging in front of my toilet so that I would see it at least twice a day. Right. And it was everything, everything. It was working with Maasai. It was volunteering. It was Kelly was on there it was um, being able to serve these children on a greater capacity. These children that I didn't know. I mean, I knew I, I had done, you know, extensive volunteer work as a volunteer coordinator here in, in my in my community, but not really knowing how much need there was out there until I got exposure to them through this organization, One Child. And, you know, there's just so much need. And this is one of those sponsorship organizations where you can actually meet the kids where you see that the work that's being done, where you see that, that the money that you're investing every month, you know, pr practically the whole, every dollar is going straight to, you know, projects and development with the kids. So I just said, I, I need to be a part of this. And I, I just committed, I came back, I got 20 kids sponsored and I got super excited. And, and, and these kids, it's remarkable. And I, I, I'll, I'll share the story of my first child that I sponsored for this climb. His name is Sibao. He was five years old at the time. And Rob, we had 23 climbers in this, in this group and each of us sponsored one child. So we were raising just under $6,000, which would help them get from age five to graduate high school, medical nutrition and educational needs met. That was their best way because these Maasai people are living so far below the poverty line that they cannot afford to send their children to school. You know, schools in Kenya are public, but they're not free. Right. You have to pay for the uniforms. You have to pay. So so it's either, listen, we eat or we go to school. And, and it's, just, it's just hard for them. And they're beautiful, amazing, generous. Like the, I say, there's nothing in the world, like the smile of a, of a Maasai person. Right. And, and the fact that we got to meet them and we got to enter it. So, so Sibao, I get once I, you know, they assigned me to him and he's who I was going to be doing my fundraising for, I get his first letter. So Sibao is, it sends me a letter and he's, you know, they ask him what he's praying for. So for the Maasai, the livestock is their status in society. Okay, so he he tells me that he's praying for a cow for his baba, which is his father. So I call. They don't know me from Adam, one child. This organization. So I call them and I speak to the VP of engagement, who's the one that we're dealing with about the climb. And I said, "Listen, um, I have to get Sipao a cow." And they're like, "Listen, we don't do that." And I said, "No, no, no. Wait. I understand? His letter says that he's praying for a cow for his father." Uh, so I need to get him a cow and, and Jack Eans at the time, he's laughing and he says, listen, we don't do that. We are a sponsorship organization, whatever. And I said, I need to speak to whoever can 
or I need you to connect me with someone in Kenya because I need for this child to understand that his prayers are being answered. And if God is going to use me as a mechanism to be able to do this, I need to make it happen. So he probably figured this Cuban, she's not going anywhere. So he says, listen, give me a couple of weeks. So he calls me back a couple of weeks later and he says, listen, we found someone in Kenya that can get you a cow and get the cow delivered, whatever. So I'm like, perfect. How much is it? He says, it's $267. And I right. said, like for the whole cow, living, breathing. $266? Yeah. So $267. I go like living, breathing cow, like a real one, not just a slide of a side of meat or whatever. So he's laughing. He goes, yeah. And I said, well, can Let's I get, get five. food? <laughs> <laughs> right. Sorry. I didn't mean to give you away. Yeah, I go, I go, can I get him too? So he's like, you're really pushing or whatever. So by the time that I get to Kenya on the trip that we, we met our kids the day before we left for the mountain, you know, his, his social worker who, who they work with at the center had in his, he goes, I mailed these to you already, but I knew they weren't going to make it in time. But here's the picture of Sipao and his mom with the two cows. And I was just blown away. I got to meet him his mom and dad, his grandmother, who was very, they're very matriarchal there. Um, and it was like, I'm talking about it and I'm all full of goosebumps. So, so fast forward, you know, we're, we're on this trip and, and we have all these other climbers and somebody mentions, you know, Hey, did they show you the pictures of the cow? I don't know if it was Jack or the president at the time, Mark. And I said, yeah, I saw the pictures and everybody starts asking what cow? And then they're like, hey, how come we didn't know about this option? So so I said, why don't we put together a like a livestock Christmas fund? Because we got back in October and maybe we can just help these kids with a little a little push. They're very resourceful. The women are very, very entrepreneurial. They're very community. They they you know, if one gets a chicken and another one gets a chicken, they'll put those chickens together and feed the community. So that's what happened. So then I took advantage and I said, okay, I'll send them two goats. And then I had, by that time, I had other kids that I had sponsored, you know, as, as part of, you know, my work when I came back. So today, Sipao is 12. He is, um, he his you know, his two cows are now seven. His two goats are now 12. And what's beautiful is that now his family is, is a family of five. You know, they have the grandma in the middle and his uncle and his wife and the three kids live, you know, in, in the same little plot of land. And and they take all of the excess and they just share it with those in the community that don't have. And it's it's really a beautiful thing to see that they're not, you know, they could barter and sell it, but they don't. They just take the blessing and they pay it forward. And they see how they can help everybody. So now we have 13 kids. And um, my goal is 100, right? But we have kids everywhere, Haiti, Ethiopia, um, India, um, Cambodia, Philippines. And, and the goal is that I want to meet all, these, all, all the children that I have sponsored. You know, I'll be back in Kenya in July. So I'll be able to meet. I, I, I focus on Kenya because I know I'll always be back there. But I've I've been to Cambodia and visited, you know, three of our sponsored kids there and and you know it's and it has you know, I'll never be able to give them what I get from from these kids. And you see the evolution and it's just it's just crazy, crazy. Bert, I wanted to ask you that that follow up question. Do you think that you help out the kids more or do you think that the kids help you out more? Yeah, the kids, the kids are the kids. I'll never be able to repay what they do. You know, now when I receive, in fact, I just got two letters um, this morning uh, that, that I'll, I'll respond to. And you just have this relationship with the kids and you know what's going on in their lives. And I, I can never, I can never repay what I get from the kids. So I got super excited, Rob, when I got back. I wanted all of my friends to experience what I was experiencing. I wanted all of them to be a part of that. You know, my granddaughter sponsored her first little girl when she was four years old. You know, we had to go on her, go online, whatever. So now she's nine. She has three. We met her little girl from Cambodia. I'll be meeting her two girls from Kenya when I go back. And, um, and she's like, Mima, I know you want to sponsor a hundred, but, but I want to sponsor 200 kids. 
So, so what's crazy, Rob, is when I got back from that first trip, I had a journal for the mountain and a journal for the, the rest of the, of the mission work we were doing. And since I was transferring out of offices, you know, I was retiring from my company. I just got a small office in my husband's building and I lost one of the journals. So my son who lives in Orlando, it, uh, you know, I'm, I, when I finally found it, I just put everything into the computer so I wouldn't risk it. So I sent it to my son and I said, Hey, everything you want to know about Africa, we'd had conversations of course, but everything you want to know about Africa is on, you know, I'm, I just sent it to you. And about a week later, he's a creative writer. And, and about a week later, he says, mom, you've got a book here. And I am not a writer. Right. Um, and I said, listen, if you can turn this into a book, I will pay to get it printed and we'll donate everything that we make to one child. And, and we did, I think it, it was a very, very um, therapeutic process for me because that re-entry, when you see something like that, you feel like really we're complaining because they gave us a venti instead of a Trenti at Starbucks or just, just like it changes your entire perspective. And, um, and I just started, I said, I just want people to experience what this is like. And, and my friends and my family, everybody started sponsoring kids. So then the, so one child reached out to me and they, they, um, they asked me if I would be on their board. And, and I was like, hell yeah, you know, I want to, I want to be able to really effectuate change. And it's been like I said, Rob, it's just been, it's been crazy, but I will never be able, I don't care what I do. I will never be able to do for these kids what, what I've gotten out of, out of this sponsored relationship with them. And you mentioned the, the gratitude and the perspective piece. I was wondering if you could just delve into that a little bit more, seeing what individuals have to go through and we complain because we lose perspective ourselves. Um, how does that impact your life on a, on a daily basis? And, and then even, you know, with, with your family and even with your coaching, how does that impact mm -hmm. you? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question, Rob. And I think one of the, one of the most interesting things is that, listen, there's so much power in generosity. Um, I think that it's, it's not, and I, and I tell people I'm really upfront uh, about my generosity. I'm very selfish when it comes to generosity, because I do it because of what I feel, <laughs> you know, sounds bad, but, but it's true. I mean, I think we're born to give and, and that's why it feels so much better to find that perfect gift for someone than if you receive the perfect gift. Um, we're just, that's just our core. I believe that you have to beat that out of people. I believe that you train that out of people. I don't recommend it. I don't know why anybody would do it, but I think that at our core, that's how we are. So when, you know, we're, we're in these villages and we're going into these Maasai villages, Rob, and, you know, you go into these little mud huts that look like they're falling apart, you know, and we had the, the honor of, of being invited into some of these homes. And you walk in there and you're just looking around and there's nothing, Rob. There's dirt. The floor is dirt. They might have a few little pots and pans and a little bushel of twigs that they use for fire. And they are the happiest people you can ever imagine. So I'm sitting there and we're with Sipao's uh, grandmother. And, and you're walking in and you're looking at this home and they've got these smiles on their faces. And, and they're just so grateful to be able to host you, you know, to invite you into their home. There's no keeping up with the Joneses and look who has what. And I mean, it's just that is non-existent. They are. They are just trying to see what they can do so that they can bless the people in their community. And Sipao's grandmother, which, which I, I have it back here, she takes off this beaded necklace that she has on. They're very, they're very good with their, you know, and that's what they do for a lot of them. What they do is create these, these necklaces and she takes it off from around her neck and she puts it on my, you know, around my neck. And I'm thinking, here's a woman who is blessing me. I mean, I have water coming out of my tap. I have bottles of water in my fridge. I have everything at my disposal. And, and I said, and she's just pouring on me. She's being generous. She's, she's, and, and the gratitude that I felt not because of the, the gift that she was giving me, 
but because of what that means to them. It's, it's, it, it's impossible not to be changed. I say that no kid should graduate high school in this country without visiting a third world country, right? Because we, we, we would never get it. I was 47 years old and I would have never understood it if I hadn't experienced that. And then you, you, you take, you bring all of that with you and you're trying to convey the message of guys, we have it so good. We, we take everything for granted. And we just, I mean, you never look at anything materially again, but I think I came back with um, how dare I complain sort of mentality. You know, we took, you know, the moms and the grandmas and the kids are the ones that really do all the work. The men take care of the livestock and the Maasai um, sort of tribes. But the women and the children are the ones that do all the work before the kids go off to school. And they sometimes have to walk two or three miles to even get to school. They really want to go to school. So, so we were helping one of the grandmas one day and she has these three jugs, you know, they put a little ribbon and they hang one on their head and one over each shoulder. And they're going to this little water hole like this with a little scooper. And they're just, they're just scooping, scooping, scooping until they hit water. And then they're filling up these three jugs and they get very, very heavy when they're filled. And they do that by themselves. I mean, we were helping them that day, but that's, that's what they go through every day and they come back and that's what they use for washing and for, you know, cleaning and for, and for, you know, their food and their needs. And then they go back and do it again in the afternoon. And it's, it's a two mile walk. And, and, and I just, you know, I kept one of, one of the, the president's wife, D who was, was with us. Um, she's like, you're going to have to just stop crying. <laughs> you're going to have to just stop. Um, and of course, you know, after a few days, you sort of, you sort of get into this flow and it becomes, you become more accustomed to it, but you come back and, and listen, Rob, that re-entry for me was a bitch. It was a bitch because I fell into a hole that I'm thinking, I, and I think it came from the frustration of there's, there's no way that I can do enough. And if there is, how do I do that? How do I make a difference how can i let these people know listen what i experienced matters and it made a difference in me and i want to help right yeah so it's crazy bird it's truly fantastic and i think it reveals um you know your soul your heart um don't don't you hate it though when starbucks does get your orders wrong i mean it's kind of <laughs> i'm sorry i was like no, I know. But I know. I, but I get it. Every every morning when I put ice in, because um, I'm a early a.m. Right. Vibe, when I put ice in there, that's that's my reminder to be thankful because I'm just realized like ice is really a huge gift. Huge gift. Um, every time I grab that there, and it's there. Yeah. Um, yeah. How has it impacted? Because I mean, you're an adventure coach. I mean, you like to do some fun things with your clients. Right. How was? Talk to us about like being an adventure coach and how that impacts that. Yeah. And that, that's, that's great, Rob. And, I, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because the, actually the, the adventure coaching piece came from Killy. You know, I was in the middle of this coaching certification program. All the climbers knew it because we had, they had really done a good job about letting us get to know each other. So we were on this mountain for seven days and sometimes people would say, Hey, you know, I'm having this issue with a coworker. Can I walk with you today? And I say, listen, I need the practice. I need the hours. Let's go. Let's go. And I found that I had already been doing coaching because you have to start doing coaching from day one of the program. And, and I found that people were much more open, much more vulnerable and much more willing to share when they're out in nature, you know, just breathing in real air or not breathing in enough air because as we got higher and higher, there was less and less oxygen. And there was just something really magical about that the vulnerability that you feel when you're in the outdoors, doing something adventurous, doing something that we don't know if we're going to summit because we don't know if somebody's going to get sick or somebody's going to puke and not rally, right? Um, and 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 I when I came down, I think that was a huge gift for me. I came down and I remember when I caught up with my mentor coach at the University of Miami. You know, I said, "Listen, does adventure coaching exist?" And she said, "What do you care? It does now." And that's how that was born. And 
it's been, uh, you know, I realize that if I can get someone to jump out of a plane with me, I can accomplish with them in six months what might take me three years at a Starbucks, right? Because you get them out of that comfort zone early. You get them to face their fears early. And once they face their fear and, and really get out of their comfort zone, they start questioning everything else that they feared. And once they can start doing that, they're, they're just checking things off. They're like, hey, this, this probably isn't real. This is probably a limiting belief. Where did it come from? Is it your limiting belief or did you inherit it from someone? Is it really your fear or did you inherit it from someone? We inherit them all, except for the fear of loud noises and the fear of falling. But everything else is injected. So, so it, really, it really was a tremendous gift to be able to, to have that perspective for myself and then to see how it was affecting everybody that I was on the mountain. It was just, again, that, that's God. No other way to say it. When, um, when you mentioned Starbucks again, it just got me back to, you know, don't you hate it when they get their order wrong? Yeah. When, <laughs> Bertie, Bertie, you're such an amazing person. I mean, talk to, I mean, walk us through, like, what is, what is it about the adventure and doing something that's very difficult that um, transfers into their other parts of their life? Okay, I, I can give you a really great example. I had one of my first clients was uh, Maria. I'll never forget her. We became good friends and we were still in touch. When I started coaching, she was just out of a really toxic relationship that she'd been in for nine years. She had gained about 100 pounds. She was just miserable. You know, she, she lost her home. It was during the craziness of everything that was going on. Lost her home. Uh, was living with her parents, you know, her, her dad wasn't doing really well, single mom. I mean, just, just, there was so much heavy, you know, and she called me one day and she said, listen, I've known her for a number of years. She said, listen, I feel like I'm in quicksand and I can't get out. I'm not, I'm not drowning fast enough, uh, but I can't get out. So we started working together and it was, it was just really beautiful that, you know, I think once they take that step, they're already really, really far into their own their own transformation. Right. So the the youth fair is like our county fair. Uh, every year it comes to town. So I said, listen, let's just go blow off some steam and and we'll go to the fair. We'll bring, you know, her youngest, still young. I said, we'll just go and shoot the shit. You know, we're going to go have fun. And I love the roller coasters and the whole, right? And she said, oh, I don't, I don't go to the fair. And I said, why? And she said, because I don't write anything. And I'm like, why? And she said, because I'm afraid of heights. And, and, and my advice to everyone out there is you never tell an adventure coach that you're afraid of heights. Right. right? So our next session, we used to meet at Starbucks and I said, listen, you know, Saturday mornings. And I said, listen, can you just be here at five? She's like, what? And I said, just meet me at five. And she's crazy. She showed up at five. So I put her in my car and I drove about an hour and a half from my home. There is a town, a little town called Cluiston and they have, a Florida Air Ridge Park where they do hang gliding. So, of course, I drive up, you know, I'm in a pink convertible Beetle. We had a great time. Drive up and she's hyperventilating in my car. She's like, what are we doing here? This is crazy. And I said, listen, your flight is paid for, but I'm not going to force you to do it. I'm going to do it. You can stay here and take pictures of me. and It's going to be great. Um, but I want you to know that your flight is paid for if you decide to do it. So it took about 45 minutes for it to be our turn to get up there. And you know what, Rob? She dared to do it. She dared to do it. She strapped up. She was up at a thousand feet for 11 minutes. And when she came down, man, I remember like it was yesterday. She came down and she said, if I told my parents and my kids what I just did, they would never believe me. And I said, actually, they will, because I had them record the entire flight. And you have enough video and pictures in there that you can always remind yourself that our fears cease to exist the moment that we face them. That's it. That's their life expectancy is as soon as you cross that threshold to face them, they're done. And what happened, Rob, that she started then questioning what other lies am I telling myself? You know, and it was, it was a very, t had nothing to do with me because she's the one that you know, suited up and got in there and did that. But I think what happened was that, you know, and as we worked together, a lot of the questions were around, 
you know, what else is missing? What else doesn't seem right? What else doesn't seem like it, like it's yours? And, you know, she had been in the same job for 30 years. She changed careers completely. Again, nothing to do with me. Um, she lost a ton of weight. She has a great relationship with her parents and with her kids. Her kids are grown now. And, and just the transformation of her becoming who she always was. But giving, you know, she was she was just hiding it in all this stuff that didn't really belong. And she has, she's a remarkable human being. She always was a remarkable human being. But now I think she realizes it herself. And I think that's that's probably the best example that I can give you to answer that question. Because that really is something that every one of us has in there. Until we have a, you know, you fall. And you realize, hey, I've got to get back up. And then you go and you and, and listen, I'm going to throw up. But you know what? After I'm done throwing up and puking, I'm going to rally and I'm going to regroup. And I'm going to, you know, so it's it's a lot of those those things that I know that you're so committed to to teaching and living and, and, and just doing life that way. That that's really what it's all about. It's just making that invitation to someone who doesn't is not aware yet that that's the only missing piece. What do you, what do you think is the biggest limiting belief that, you know, in all the coaching clients and your podcast, what do you think is the biggest limiting belief that people have? I think the biggest limiting belief is, I mean, and they, they suffer from, I think the, the, the self-sabotage, the fear we can deal with. Right. And the self-sabotage is something that they suffer from. But I think the, the, the biggest limiting belief that most people have is that they can't. That they just can't. And, and and the truth is they won't. Not that they can't, they won't. But they 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 just it's a misinterpretation of of the limitation. And they just they they feel like they can't. Or and it's not even a they're not capable because when you phrase it that way, they'll they'll challenge you on it. But it's just they, they don't even they don't even, you know. I didn't, I probably didn't think I could climb a mountain because I hadn't done it, but I didn't know if I could do it or not because I hadn't done it. But I, but I think that's, that's a big one that just keeps coming up. And, and the way that they're, that we all are talking to ourselves is extremely toxic, extremely toxic. And we're not aware of it. And I, and I tell people from the bat, listen, if you wouldn't say it to your kid, you can't say it to yourself. Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't say it to your boss, you can't say it to yourself. And, 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 and you, you catch them. And every time that you catch them, you sort of tweak it a little bit until you hear that they're, even their conversations when they're talking out loud change. And, but, but I think that, that, that default that we can't is just there. And it's our job to, to challenge that. Yeah. Yeah. I always say we got to be so careful about what we say to ourselves because we're listening listening. Berta, um, you, you talk about being a serial passionista. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? Yes, of course. I love that. I, I and it's so funny because my daughter just left this morning. She went back, back home and, and she's, you know, one of the most serial passionistas that I know. And I think, I think what it is, Rob, we, we have so much on our plate and we want to do so much and we have so many, we're, we're great. I think as humans, our brains are wired to come up with ideas. So the problem becomes in bringing those ideas to fruition because we get distracted or we get, we, we're not following through on 90% of what we set out to do because then something new comes along. And I have, I mean, pages and pages and pictures of whiteboards that I keep in stored of ideas and things that would seem great, but I'm not even following through on the basics. And what happens is for serial passionistas, and if they're out there, they, they can relate. You have all, you have one idea and, and that evolves into a million ideas before you even get this one off the ground. And you find that two or three years later, you're going to come back to that original idea. Right. <laughs> Just you didn't do it. So I think that's one of the things. And there's a lot of lack of focus. I think it, there's a lot of, and I think that's where what we do is so, is so beautiful is that, we can put everything down. You know, I, I'll do a four or five hour strategy session sometimes. And I have 
my son says I have my, my office office. I'm in my home office now is a giant whiteboard with an office around. Right. But when you go there and you start putting everything down and you're able to look at everything, you can start to compartmentalize and you start moving the needle. And until you do that, these people that have all this busy in their heads or on their shoulders and they don't realize it's just, it's just stuff. Cause you talk about like the problem isn't your passion. It's your process. It's great. You have to have the passion behind it, but it's, it's very easy to lose steam if your process is not consistently moving you in the direction of bringing that to fruition, bringing that out into the world. And listen, I've, I've, I've spoken with people and sat down with people that I say, you know, the world needs you. What are you doing? Oh, I've had this idea forever. And, and they, it's just, it's just nobody is making the invitation to let's sit down and look at it. Let's sit down and look at it. And, and I think that's, you know, I think as coaches, we're, we're not being more, what is the word I'm looking for? We are not being more assertive in believing in it with them. And if we can believe in it with them, you know, cause sometimes I say, and, and my daughter will tell me, or my son will tell me, you know, you want it more for them than they want it for themselves. And I'm like, because I see it, I see it. I, I, you know, I, you know, how there are some people that can walk into an old house. My husband is like that. Okay. All my cousins are like that. They can walk into an old house and they see the new kitchen and they knock down this wall and it's going to open up this area, whatever. I don't have that. I walk into an old house and I'm like, build me a new one. I don't have the patience. I don't have the, I, I can't visually see it. I need yeah. to see it. You know, I, I don't have it. But when it comes to people, Rob, I see it, man. I, I, you know, there's a block of my, I, I can't even draw a stick for you. Right. But I, I can imagine that that's what these great sculptors see that, you know, it's that block, like, like Michelangelo said, I just, you know, I see, you know, there was a block of marble and I just set the angel free with David and, and it's just the masterpiece is there. And it's very easy for people like you and I probably, and a lot of really great coaches out there for us to see it. All we have to do is chip away at everything that doesn't belong, the beliefs, the fears, you know, the, the them getting in their own way. You start chipping that away, man. And as soon as they can see it, you're done. Yeah. You're done. That's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. And that really turns me on. That mm -hmm. sets my soul on fire. Roberto, what question should I be asking you that, that I'm not asking? Did they mess up my order this morning at Starbucks? Did they? No, they did not. Most of the time they get it right. <laughs> they got it right. Listen, I, I, I very, I don't think I've ever gotten it wrong. Um, I don't know, Rob. What, what's, your, what's your usual drink? Uh, I'm boring. Grande non-fat latte because it's the most like a Cuban cafe con leche. That's that or a hot chocolate if we're if I'm in the mood. But that's it. I'm like super boring. Like my mm. daughter's, yeah. you know, her text is you know twenty five. You know, lines long. <laughs> I'm, I'm boring too. I'm a grande americano. Yeah, there you yeah. go. That's it. That and a and a and a classic coffee cake, and I'm done. Seven seventy one. Boom. I have twenty six hundred stars sitting in my in my rewards little bucket right now. I can I can be somewhere for a month and not have to pay for one drink. <laughs> <laughs> what What should I be asking you that I'm that I'm not asking? Okay, let me see. What should you be asking me that you're not asking me? How about how can someone get involved with changing the world for a child? Oh, I love it. Right? Yes. Everywhere. Even in our own neighborhood, there is an opportunity to make a difference in the life of a child. And I think that if we can breathe life into children's dreams at an early age, we'll never have to worry about fixing the adult. And I use that word very loosely, right? And I think, and I think kids are forgetting. You know, I do a lot of a lot of uh, the the book that I wrote about the the Killy climb my kids and I did a children's book as if my granddaughter had done the climb for Sipao. So it's called Chloe climbs for Sippy. 
We found a great illustrator out of California. So I take that book and I do a lot of a lot of career days to talk to children about the power of generosity and the power of 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 missions. And some of them don't know and don't have that exposure. But the missions are sometimes in our backyard. And and I talk to a lot of kids these days, Rob. And my first question is, what's your dream? And I go around the room and I ask each one of them. And it breaks my heart when an eight-year-old doesn't have a dream. And and they're out there. I know they're dealing with stuff. I know that there are, there are issues. And listen, sometimes it's our own kids. You know, as parents, we're busy. And now we have these electronic devices that make it so easy for us not to feel like we are ignoring our kids. But we need to be asking all children what their dreams are. And, and I think if we, if we can do that enough and get them dreaming and, and help them understand that they are capable and it is possible and that, you know, once that seed of a dream has been planted in their heart, they have everything that they need to achieve it, man, the world would look very, very different. I believe that the world would look very different if people were really working in the direction of their dreams, especially when it comes to children, because that's, that's the least that kids can do is to be dreaming. And when they're not nuts. <laughs> Bert, I really appreciate the time. Where can people um, learn more about you, but then also get more involved? Sure. Uh, my, my website, and we'll put the links on there too. Yeah. Okay. Is, uh, is probably the easiest way. I'm very active on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, I'm Berta Medina Garcia. Uh, my website is just BertaMedina.com. Um, and, and guys, if you, if you can, if you haven't done it in a while, uh, just go and Google wherever your hometown is, just Google volunteer opportunities and, and, and just see that I know there, there are limitations now because of COVID, but there is so much need. If you don't find anything, whatever pantry in your local community exists, they need the help. They need the help. I've been doing a lot of work lately with Feeding South Florida, with Miami Rescue Mission, and with Broward Outreach. These are organizations, you know, that serve the homeless organizations that serve, you know, um, people that are in hunger. You know, we're still in this pandemic and people are still not really working. The the, the food lines here uh, at a nearby park are still are still aggressive when they have them. So there, there are just a lot of opportunities to serve. And, and if you can get your little ones, listen, eventually for high school, they're going to need it. But if you can, what I would do is my kids, the earliest they could volunteer was eight years old. So for their eighth birthdays, that would, that's what they would get. Hey, congratulations. You have to start volunteering. So by the time high school came around, they had thousands of hours and it didn't bother them because it's part of their normal life. But the, the sooner you can get your kids serving in the community, it's, it's going to get you to do it with them. Those bonds that you're going to create as a family are, are going to be things that they're going to, they're going to talk about and brag about more than any vacation, more than anything else. Um, so if you can get out there, but just there are so many opportunities to serve folks. And, and you know you want to, because if you're listening to this, you know you want to, but, but just get out there and do it. Just, you know, check it off the list. And, and once you do it once, you'll get addicted, I promise. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for, for listening for to us. the Mental Toughness Great. Podcast. I really appreciate you, Rob. If you like what you heard today, please be sure so to subscribe for, your, for our podcast. For friendship, for you your can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell and, and, or visit and our website at drrobbell.com. An opportunity to have a conversation with you.